So th this is pretty encouraging. People said that I'm going to be preaching and there's not a seat left. Yeah. That, wow. Should, should I get used to that? I don't know. That's, no, this is, uh, this is our situation for this week and for next week. Uh, we are going to be meeting for the next few months in the classroom right beside us. But for this week and next week, we're, we're going to get a little intimate and squishy together. Is that okay? Yeah. So, okay, no complaints there. Cool. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Old Testament. And please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Yeah. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We got some love for 2 Samuel. Is that good? <laughs> And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. There was a man in the 1600s, and he was thrown into prison for committing a crime. Now, this wasn't a luxurious present. This was a stone prison. You were put in there for one reason, to die and for people to forget about you. So he was thrown in there, but he was thrown with two things, the clothes on his back and a Bible. And he was there for 30 years until one day the guards who gave him his food, they noticed that the food was not being taken under the cell door, that it was just sitting there. Like, oh, I guess he's finally passed. So they open the door, they open it up, and sure enough, they see the man laying dead in the corner. But then they looked on the walls, and what they saw written on the walls was amazing. You want to know what it was? Well, I'm not good. No, okay. So on the walls were written this. The Bible has 727,669 words. The longest verse in the Bible has 90 words. The shortest verse in the Bible has two words. The Bible has 66 books. Are you impressed yet? He kept going. The longest book in the Bible is Psalms. The shortest book is 3 John. And the only domesticated animal not mentioned in the Bible is the cat. And we all say, Amen. Amen. <laughs> now, some of you may be blown away by those facts. He was left with the Bible for 30 years, and this is what he found. But friends, did he get the Bible? Did he? He didn't. All he did was counted numbers. All he did was look at it and see fact after fact and wrote it on the wall. But he did not get what the message of the Bible was. And I wonder if that's some of us today. We've heard of the Bible. We've seen the Bible. Maybe we've seen it in our grandparents' house or we've seen it on TV or we've seen it in movies or whatever. And we see it and we hear these random facts, but we have no idea what it means. And what we do is we take those facts and that's how we identify the God of the Bible. Right? But what we've been doing since the beginning of the year is we've been going through a series called The Story of God. And what we want to do is we want to actually go through the Bible and see why did God speak this? Why did God use the men and women that he did? Why is this book exist? Why? What is this story about? And how does it play a part in our lives? Is it just a very old story or is it something that has relevance and meaning today? What is the point of this? And so we've been going through something called the story of God. And what we've been looking at is the meta narrative, the grand narrative. In 10 weeks, we're going to take you from Genesis to Revelation. 
Are you ready for that? Okay. And what we want to see through this story is how the God of the Bible, the God who created everything that you see, including you and including me, we want to see how he relates to his people and to the world. That's what we want to do. And so the past few weeks, here's what we've seen. We see how this God of the Bible relates to creation. He speaks it into existence. He creates male and female. And even when sin comes into the picture and separates a holy God from sin, we see what he has to do with that. And what does he do? Well, that's what we saw with Abraham. He creates a covenant. He creates a covenant with Abraham. And what we see with this in the story of God is that the God that we deal with in the Bible is a God who makes and keeps promises. He makes and keeps his covenants. And then last week we saw, excuse me, uh, we saw that he is a God that leads his people. He is always with his people. And Pastor Greg did such an amazing job of just showing us what that means to live with God in the desert and out of the desert. Wasn't that powerful? If you haven't heard that, you need to go back and listen to that. And so what we are going to look at this week we're going to look at the royal monarchy, how God establishes a king for his people, and in the same way, establishes a king for everyone in this room and in this world today. And so we're going to see that in 2 Samuel, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So what, what, I've been, what I called this sermon today is king-size problems. I hope that's okay. I'm a youth pastor, so I thought that was a clever name, but king-size problem. And I want to look at how does God use authority to create space, to create relationship with one another? How does God use authority to create relationship between us and him and with one another? So as we continue on with the story of God, two things we need to look at. First, we need to look at the people of God. To know the story of God, you have to know the people of God. Now, when we look at the people of God, you can put the first slide up there. We may think these are the perfect people, right? Is that slide going up? Cool. We may think they're perfect people, okay? <laughs> that... that you know, God only uses the best. God only uses the mighty and the strong and the powerful. But what we've been seeing as we go through Adam and Eve and Abraham, there's been deceit, there's been brokenness, there's been lies. And inf instead of this majestic picture, what we get is kind of like an awkward family photo. Something like this, okay? <laughs> that is the family that God uses. If that is your family, I am so sorry, but I just found that <laughs> online. Probably spent way too much time with that picture this week. But here's the thing, when we look at the people of God's story, what we need to look at is also, why would he use these people? And that comes to the attributes of God. He's all-powerful, he's almighty, he's everywhere at once, but at the same time, this God, he chooses. You can get off that slide, I don't think any... <laughs> but God chooses. So why would he use people like that? Because he chose to use them. Yeah. And friends, that is good news for me. That is good news for you. And as we see today in 2 Samuel, God chose David. Well, how did this come to be? I'm going to give you a little history, and then we're going to get into the text, okay? So here's Israel. Israel, or here's the history. Israel was God's people set apart. Remember, God chooses. And his people, even though God was their leader, he, they wanted to be led like they saw in the world. Well, the world has a king. Why don't we have a king? 
You know, God has been speaking to us through the priests and through the prophets, but what, what about us? Everyone else has a king. Everyone else has power and authority, and you can see it through a physical person. All we're doing is carrying this Ark of the Covenant, which, re which represents God's power. Why don't we have a king? So they asked the prophet Samuel, who the book is written after, for a king. And the people chose Saul. Who chose Saul? The people, not God. The people chose Saul. He looks like a king. He looks like someone we could follow. He's strong on the outside. People like him. That's who we want. And so they chose Saul. But if you read First and Second Samuel, was Saul a good king? He was not, because he was not about the kingdom of God. He was about Saul's kingdom. He was about his own ambitions. And in chapter 7, we see that God sets up a king that he chooses. Not one on the outward appearance, but one that looks at the heart. God sets up David as king. So Israel is united under David as king, and Jerusalem captured, and now part of the city of David. Their enemies, the Philistines, are destroyed, and the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence on earth, is back in Israel's possession, okay? And now we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I know we're a bit squished here, but out of respect for God's word, would you mind standing with me if you are able? And we're going to read this, okay? There's going to be quite a few verses here, but I'm just going to read it. And yeah, here we go. Actually, we could read it together if we have. You guys want to read with me? <coughs> here we go. One, two, three. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Next. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house for the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise you up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your God will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the king that you are. And we just pray that you would bring our attention to this. Teach us today what this means. And Jesus, would you take over at this moment? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Thanks for reading along with me. <coughs> so a few years ago, I was asked a very important question. I was dating a beautiful girl at the time. This is my wife. She's still beautiful. But I was dating her, and her father asked me a very important question. He even asked it in a different language, which meant he was serious. And he said, Matt, what is your five-year plan? Uh, five-year five plan? He goes, yes, for the next five years, if I'm going to give my daughter to you, what are you going to do for the next five years? Well, um, lo lo love God. L love her. And I keep looking at him to make sure it's the right answer, but... He, he didn't show any expression, just kind of looking at me. I'm like, love God, love her. Um, I'll, maybe if we move to Vancouver, we'll, we'll buy a house. Like I said, this was a long time ago. And I said, <laughs> maybe buy a house and take care of her. And, and that, that's what, what I'll do. Now, if we're asked that question, maybe we could think of, okay, what's the next few years going to look like? Or what's the next year? If someone were to ask you, what's your five-year plan? I don't know what we would say. We, we could, might make a projection and might look at it. But here in this chapter, in this section, God is not asking David, what's his five-year plan? He's giving him his plan, right? He's not saying, hey, what are you going to do for me? He's saying, hey, here's what you are going to do for me. And this chapter is broken into two sections. First, it's God's command. He's telling David what's going to happen in his life. And the second part is David worshiping God. He chooses to worship God. And in this passage today, we see three things that I want to point out. One, God makes his own plans. Two, God chooses his servants. And three, God establishes his covenant. He chooses whom to have covenant with. So the first one, God chooses his own plans. Here's what's happening. We read it just a few minutes earlier. Excuse me. <clears throat> Here's what's happening. You have David. You have Nathan. The nations are united. They are brought together. They are in the city of David. And they're sitting there. Imagine maybe like a cold drink in their hands. And they're looking over the land. And David goes, wow, look at this, Nathan. We did it. We're here. But Nathan, let me ask you something. Look down there. There is the tent where God is, where the Ark of the Covenant is, and I'm here on top of a palace. What am I doing in a house of cedar when God is down there? You know what? I think, that's a good place to start, I think I should do something for God. I'm going to build him a palace. Why should I have a palace and he doesn't? So I'm going to build it. And the wise prophet Nathan says, go for it, man. 
<laughs> Go for it. Whatever you want, man, you do it. Now, were these words of Nathan the prophet or were these words of just Nathan? These were words of just Nathan because we see that in the very next verse. And God came to Nathan. Uh-oh, okay, later that night, God came to Nathan. And we know that that was, not Na- that was not God's word. That was not his way of doing things. It's like, yeah, I, I know that you have plans and I'm glad that you have ideas and stuff like that, but do you really think you're going to build a house for me? Nathan, I have been with my people. I'm a God who is with his people. Wherever the people go, that's where I want to be. So yeah, you may want to build a house for me, but are you really going to build a house for me? No, I want to build something for you. And in my own life, I remember when I was in Bible college, I wanted to be a youth pastor. That's why I was there. I studied hard to be a youth pastor. Some may not think you have to study hard to be a youth pastor, but it is hard to remember where to order pizzas and all that. So yes, you have to study. So while I was preparing for this, I was preparing for my own youth ministry in the U.S. That's where I was going to be, a youth pastor. But as I continued to get closer to my graduation date, no youth pastors from the States had called me. No one had contacted me and said, are you, are you Matt Johnson? Are you the one who's the youth pastor in the city? We want you. No, no one said that. In fact, though, I had one annoying pastor reach out to me who was in the Philippines. It was my dad. And he kept saying, Matt, you need to come here and be a youth pastor. We have kids getting saved, but they have no youth pastor. I'm like, no, no, I'm supposed to be here. I have a t-shirt design. I'm good. I'm supposed to be here in the States. And the night before graduation, I fell on my knees and I prayed. I said, God, these past four years I have studied to be a youth pastor for you. And I thought it was to be here in the States. But there's youth in the Philippines. And then I stopped. And I realized there's youth in the Philippines. That's where God is calling you. So it's great what you want to do. But here is what I want for you to do. And I want to ask you, have you been there? Have you been on that rooftop with David and with Nathan? And you're looking over and say, okay, I've got some big plans for us, God. It's going to be good. I'm going to graduate. I'm going to marry that girl right there. I'm going to get that house. And after that, God, you do whatever you want with us. I am so, have you had that? Or God, if you give me this job, oh man, we're going to do some amazing things together. But what does God say? Will you really build a house for me? No, I will build a house for you. And that is what we see with David. And so what we see is that God makes his own plans. And with these plans, God chooses his servants. He chooses the people that will serve out these plans. As we saw in verse 8, Now then, this is God speaking, Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture. He was a shepherd from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people of Israel. He's reminding him, hey, the reason you're on that roof, I knew that was coming. I took you from the field and now I'm giving you the people. It's me. Don't forget that. And who God chooses to use, man, let him use you. The word servant that we see in this verse is the same word that we have seen used for Moses and for Joshua. God tells Israel, 
excuse me, that they disobeyed, that they have been, that they have not been good children, but because of his servant David, every good thing that God does to Israel is because of his servant. Now this is parallel language. It's not because David is a perfect person, but what he is showing is this. As we see that David is a in a sense, just kind of keeping the seat warm, keeping the king's seat warm. For who? He's keeping the people's eyes to the throne because one will come after him, a perfect and a better David. As we see in Isaiah, for to us a child is born, to us a child is given, uh, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of this government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. If God wants to use you, let him use you because he knows what's going to happen. You may not know what's going to happen. But that's why we let him use us, because he knows. And that's what leads us to our third point, that God chooses and establishes his covenant. God chooses and establishes his covenant. God gives a gift to David by promising him future grace. Now, I want to show you just through a picture. We have a diagram up here. Do we have that, Annika? So in this diagram, I want to show you where we have been in the story of God and what's about to take place between God and David and us. Does that sound good? So for all the visual learners, I worked very hard on this. Do not critique. This is for you. Say thank you. Okay. <coughs> so here's what we found in Genesis, that God is a creating God. He created everything that you see, but everything he created, he created with a purpose. And one of those purposes, that he would be the king. That's why I drew the crown, okay? He would be, it's not that hard. He would be, he would be the king over his people. And this is what it should look like. Because God always intended to give the earth a human king. He did. Look at Adam and Eve. What did he give them? Dominion over everything, right? He wanted them to rule the earth, but with God as king, to have that relationship with the king. But then what happened? What did Adam and Eve say? Well, I want to be king. I want to try this. And imagine, God, what if you're king and we're king, then there's two kings. So that's cool, right? More power. We can do it. No, they did not realize that this, only God can be king. And so they said, God, we don't want you to be king. We want to try to be king. And what happened? Well, if we say no to God, the one who created us, well, the opposite of life with God is separation from God. Sin is exactly the opposite of who God is. So if God is good, then sin is bad, right? If God is just, sin is unjust. If God is selfless, Sin is? Oh, you guys are good. Okay. But here's the big one. Here's where it matters. If God is life, sin is? And so by definition, a holy God cannot be with sin. It's not that he doesn't love us. But if we choose to be away from him, if we choose to rule our own lives, he says, I can't work with that. I can't because I'm still king. I can't take that away. That's who I am. 
I created this for you. That's who I am. And so there's going to be penalty. There's going to be separation because you're choosing this. But if the story ended there, if the story of God ended there, what a lame story. What a bad story. But it doesn't. And here's where we are right here. God says, I am going to bring a king to this world. Now, it wasn't that God didn't see that we would rebel, okay? Like, oh, no, I didn't know this. Quick, flood. No, he, he wasn't saying that. He knew what was going to be taking place. <laughs> but what do we see? He establishes through David, he says, you know what? If people need to see my invisible rule through a visible king, that's fine. I will establish you. But David, it will not be about you. It'll be about my son, the perfect son. I have lots of children. I have the children of Israel. I have lots. But now my rule will be identified through one of my children. And it will be my son, Jesus. God in flesh. He came to this earth. And here's what he does. He shows us what it means to have a king. He shows us what serving a king looks like. A king who actually served us first. No other kingdom is like that. No other religion is like that. No other belief system is like that, where the God humbles his authority, humbles his power to have relationship. And then one day, he will return. This king will return. He defeated death. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he will come back. And will we follow the king, or will we not? And that's what this is. Don't be a king. Let him be king. Okay? That's what I did. Check mark. Done. <laughs> and we see this uh, as Paul writes. Do we have that verse up there in Romans? Here's what he's saying to David. Paul, a servant of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as, excuse me, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So through this dynasty that God is giving and promising to David, it is still the same dynasty for us. So for us, this may be good news. This should be good news. But I can't speak for everyone in this room that this is good news. And why is that? Because I am telling you that you will never rule your life. That's God's job. That's what you have been created for. That's what he was reminding David. That's what he was reminding the children of Israel. That's what he is reminding us today. And even if we are ready for a king or someone to take charge of our lives, because life is scary, life is hard, life is messy, we want someone else to do it. Even if we are ready for that, it is still easy for people to contrast relationship with authority. And here's what I mean by that. When you hear the name of God today, it may be a name of comfort or it may be a threat, right? 
Oh, God, I love that name. I've seen him work. I've seen... Oh, God. I prayed for this to happen, and it didn't happen. He's a God who saves, huh? Well, why didn't he save that one? That was awesome. For those listening online, the lights just went off. Okay. But here's the thing. As we saw with the children of Israel, the people... What did they want a king for? They wanted a king just to look like everyone else, to hide behind their king. Look at everyone else. Look how they do it. We are supposed to be a people of God and a people of faith, but we, we don't even have a king. Quick, get a king so that they can be the representative, so that we can just stand behind them. Quick, get a king. And sometimes we're the same way. We want a king, or we want a spouse, or we want a job, or we want success, or we want something that we can not just hide behind, but let them do all the work, wow. right? I'm not the happy pastor today, okay? <laughs> or the cute one, yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. That's what Israel wanted. Give us a king. But then what other people will say is, I don't want a king. I don't want people telling me what to do. What about equality? What, what about just a democracy? Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just be friends and get along? And you know what? Even if you gave me a king, what if I'm smarter than that king? What if I make better choices than that king? But here's how God demonstrates his authority. He is not a God that you can just hide behind. He is not just a God that allows you to just go and run away. He's a God that runs to you. Each and every single one of us, he has ran to. Has he not? Are we here because of our own ambitions or because of our own rooftop experience as we're sitting there and say, what can I do for God? No, it's because God ran after me. <coughs> so, how does authority, this relationship as God is king between us, how does that get redeemed and not replaced? How does it get redeemed and not replaced? C.S. Lewis has a brilliant quote here, and I know this is a long one, but just slog through it with me. Are you ready? Here we go. Uh, a while ago, years ago, he wrote an article just entitled, equality. And here's what he wrote about it. He said, I am a Democrat because I believe in the fall of man. What a powerful line. I think most people are Democrats for the opposite reason. A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in the government. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that they're not true. Whenever their weakness is exposed, the people who prefer tyranny make capital out of the exposure. I'm so glad we can't relate to that in Canada. Okay, next. Or can we? <laughs> I find that they're not true without looking further than myself. I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost, much less a nation. Nor do most people, all the people who believe advertisements and think in catchwords and spread rumors. The real reason for democracy is just the reverse. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no man fit to be a master. Wow. 
C.S. Lewis has said some pretty good things, right? That's amazing. <coughs> and further on in the, here's what he states. He said, as you saw, that he is in favor of democracy simply because we are all sinners. We are in need of checks and balances. But a powerful quote he says later in the article is, democracy is medicine. It is not food. It is medicine for what ails us, but it is not food. The ultimate reality is not democracy because the truth is you were created to be ruled. You were created to be ruled. And if you don't acknowledge Jesus as king, the truth is you will serve somebody. You will, because that's how you were made. You will bow your knee to someone, and you may not admit that. That is what you're doing. But human nature will be served. And Lewis said, if your life doesn't get food, it will gobble up poison because it has to surrender to something. The truth is, friends, we need a king. In the Bible, this chapter says Jesus is our king. So obey him like a king. Treat him as a king. Do whatever he says, whether you like it or not, because he's the king. Trust him like a king. Rely on him like a king. Don't rely on your career. Don't rely on people, because if you do, then people are your king. Your career is your king. But rely on your king. Now, here's one thing I want to say. At the beginning of the year, one of our challenges as a church we felt led to do was that each of us would reach one person in our relational circles this year for Jesus. That each of us would have that moment with a friend, with a relationship that we have invested in and said, will you make Jesus your king? You know, it's so funny. I, a lot of people, when, when I talk to them, they're like, ah, I, you know, God, he just sounds like a crutch that you lean on and that, you know, um, just something that you made up just to feel better about yourself. I'm like, you know what? If I made up God, to feel better about myself, I wouldn't do half the things that he told me to do. Because the problem with that is God speaks. God tells me what to do. Yeah. God says, go and make disciples. God says, go and live like I'm your king and show people that you're my king. Don't be silent about it. Show them. Speak to them. Live a life that is worthy of the king because the king is worthy. And so I'm going to ask Jonathan to come up at this time. But there's another quote here. His name is John Newton. You may know him. He wrote Amazing Grace, and he wrote another hymn. And it said this, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. How powerful is that? We want to follow God, but sometimes we forget that we're actually following the king. But not just a king of power, a king of love, a king who runs after us, a king who picks us up when we fall down, a king who is the foundation that will never crumble, that we can stand on. But, but we can also go to the king and we can ask, we can make petition. And so what I want to ask you today, who's the king of your life? Who have you bowed your knee to? 
Who are you serving? Are they serving you back? God will. If you can bow your head and close your eyes. We're going to close and then Jonathan's going to lead us in a response song. But with your eyes closed, I just want to ask a few questions. And the reason for this is just so no distractions around you. This is time for you and your king. And if God is not your king here, if you're visiting us, if you're still wrestling with these issues, this is just a time for you to think, man, who have I been serving all of these years? I think it's amazing that we serve a God that is not a reactionary God, but a God who has made a plan. And as we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, all creation has been waiting for 2 Samuel chapter 7, that the king has a plan. The king has made a way all along. And I get it. When we wake up some days, we say, man, I don't know how I'm going to do another day of this. Whether it's the bills that we serve, whether it's the people in our life that we serve, that we give our time to, that we give our troubles to, the king is saying, give it to me. Give it to me. I knew this would come. I knew this life would not be easy. But never forget, I am the king. And what about those in your relational circles that are looking for a king? They're going to get tired of building their own kingdom one day. They will, because their kingdom will collapse. And we're looking for a kingdom that will not. But that kingdom already has a king. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now as king, because you are worthy. You are worthy of our time. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our thoughts. You are worthy of everything. And God, you invite us to humbly give those to you. Lord, even in this space at Langara, we declare you as king. How cool is that? Wherever we go, we can declare to this world that we have an identity. We have a king. And it is you. And so God, I pray that if we, not have been if we have not been following the king, God, would you catch our attention again? Would you chase after us as you always do? And would you show us why you are worthy, why you are above all, and why we are in need of a king? And Lord, for our friends that need a king, would you please give us the boldness to show that you are the king? But would you also keep us humble in knowing that we are not the savior? That is you. So God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.